that working? No. Is that working? No. Well, this is switched on. It should be all right. It's working now. Can you hear off the back? Always a good idea to ask at the outset. I come from a rural Australia. I was many years ago extolling the virtues of a 15% goods and services tax as proposed by the then leader of the coalition, Dr John, Dr. John Houston. And I was out at a little place called Garrah. Anybody here ever been to Garrah? Some of you have. Just a graduate. There you go. And it started to rain very heavily. A tin, tin hall with a tin roof, no lighting, no insulation. And I realised that they probably couldn't hear me over the din and I could see someone down, down the back through the balloon that I recognised. And I yelled out to him, Bill, can you still hear me over this racket? And he stopped back and said, I can, as a matter of fact, but I'd rather change places with someone who can't. <laughs> so I've since learnt that it's best to establish at the outset that the mic works. Uh, look, thank you for having me for today. It brings back a lot of memories coming back to this campus. Uh, a lot of years have intervened. I suppose I'm about halfway between where you're at as a university student and the end of my days on, on Earth, if I live the average uh, length of time for an Australian male. So uh, it's, uh, it's interesting to have those memories coming back. And I'd just like to sort of take, if you like, a mid-term moment to reflect on what I've learnt in my 52 years about the way in which I am convinced as I look back over and as I look forward that we can rely on God to prepare us for whatever it is he has in mind for us during our working and beyond life, uh, that he will sustain us through it and that he will at the end grant the victory, though the victory may be rather different than that which you're expecting. Now I'm very much out of the public eye now and that suits me fine, so thank you for remembering me. Uh, I'm at that unusual stage where uh, people look at me and say, I think I've seen him somewhere before, uh, but I can't quite place him. Uh, you're of a slightly younger genre and would never have had the opportunity, even if you'd been in my electorate to vote for me. So uh, most of you won't have much memory of me at all. I should think it's four years now since I stepped down uh, in a very blessed way, I suppose, uh, doing it at a time of my own choosing, which doesn't happen very often in politics. Uh, as Deputy Prime Minister in 18 months since I left the Parliament altogether. Uh, it does occasionally give rise to some lighter moments. Uh, my wife and I were supporting a charity about 12 months ago in Sydney and a very nice lady uh, approached me at that. I could tell from the look on her face she had something she wanted to say uh, and she started, I have to say I thought very appropriately, by referring to me now, young man, she said. <laughs> I may not look that way to you, but I did to her. She said, I know I've seen you around Sydney many times over the last couple of decades. She said, I know you've also been introduced, but I'm very embarrassed to have to say to you that I don't remember your name. So you're going to have to tell me who you are, because I can't resist the urge to tell you that you bear an uncanny resemblance to that fellow John Anderson who used to be the Deputy Prime Minister. <laughs> so. Well, I grew up in a, in a farming family. I'm a five generations farmer on one side and six on the other in northwestern New South Wales. And we were pretty much a typical sort of reasonably isolated country family. Uh, God was observed only in a quaint old fashioned sort of habit that uh, the governess used to, my mother died when I was very young, governess uh, was obliged to make us say our prayers before we went to bed. And I did correspondence school, uh, Blackfriars Correspondence School. And before the days, there were even radio to help you in the classroom. I didn't go into a classroom until I was nine or ten. Uh, and there was a scripture session in that once a week. That was the full extent of it. We never went to church, uh, never darkened the portal, so to speak. 
uh, and uh, that was about it. I went to a boarding school in Sydney, uh, and something unusual happened while I was there. They took on a young and vibrant uh, new chaplain who believed in and preached the gospel, and a whole lot of boys got converted. I was amongst them, and I'm not going to dwell on that part of my life, except to say that like so many, I suppose, of you and your friends, towards the end of school, in my first uh, couple of years of this university, I moved right out of that ambit altogether. I thought, this is just too hard, the rest of uh, what is happening around me is too attractive, uh, there's everything from the party scene to being able to get around, uh, having inherited uh, on the promise that if I got into university and then got through first year, my, uh, my father's holding you. They were different days. I don't know whether any of you are still sort of holding new drivers, but every history had that one in those days. Uh, but they, uh, you know, uh, they've had three speeds on the column, manual sit, drum brakes, no radio, no heater, let alone air conditioning. But you got around and it was all very attractive and it was a lot of fun. Uh, however, more by accident than by design, I'd originally thought perhaps I'd like to do arts law and I... Uh, part of company with the law faculty. I don't think they thought much of me. I didn't enjoy law very much, but I'd better be very careful what I say here tonight, given <laughs> what most of you do. Uh, and I finished the arts degree, and more by default than by design, ended up in a course called Late Modern European History. And I recognise now what a tremendous preparation that was to be for the time that I then spent 19 years in public life and beyond. Late Modern European History, I remember mean, they still teach such a strand. I'm sure many parts of it are taught. But it was, in essence, a study of our culture, the intellectual underpinnings, uh, the values underpinnings, if you like, of what we take away as a way of life, uh, Western society, with its freedoms, its democratic ideas and what have you. And I'm going to try and find a shorthand way to say that what essentially emerged out of that for me was this, that as the Chinese understand, here's an interesting one for you, Chinese government in Beijing just recently received a major study handed to it, uh, commissioned by it, into the state of Christianity in China. It's exploding, as you know. It's said that there may be half a billion Chinese by the middle of... Big problem for Richard Dawkins, isn't it? By the middle of the century, and that will irrevocably change the course of human history if that happens. In the meantime, it's exploding. And the Chinese government is particularly concerned about it. You know why? They see for want of a better term, if I can put it this way, in the old-fashioned way, real Christianity as being the, the force, the, the, uh, uh, the, the influencer, if you like, the people that agitate for democracy. They look at their European history and say that idea that each individual matters, that the serf must respect the king, the king must respect the serf, that people ought to be given a say, there ought to be a, because of the if you like their standing, everyone matters, uh, by the vote, there are peaceful means of removing people, the past have come from a pencil, not from a gun. It's all deeply rooted in Christian theology and Christian worldview. And we've lost sight of all of that, but what I was to discover, and what was to hit me so forcefully as a postmodernist in the 1970s, you're still postmodernist, okay? That's what you are, that way. Uh, as somebody wanted to sit on the fence and not draw any conclusions, was that there was a very uncomfortable place to be. So here we were as a society that really had evolved so much that was of value, so much we took for granted, so much that actually was to be envied by those who didn't enjoy it, and yet at the same time as all of that was evolving, 
When Lady of Intellectual Thought was the most away from Christianity, determined to get away from it. Lesson number one was what the Bible says is right. We actually don't want to know the truth. We particularly don't want to know about Jesus Christ and the influence he might have on our life, any recognition that we actually need him because of our own failings. We want to get away from it. And so, as I say, the very time of the great benefits of Reformation Christianity really starting to produce harvest and we'll continue to do for, so for a long time right through the whole social reform agenda, the anti-slavery movement the freeing of women from you know, underground prisons and coal mines and children and all the rest of it under the great social reforms of the 19th century led by the evangelical Christians. At the same time as all that happening, the intelligence is trying to take us another way. Uh, so you had Darwinism and uh, I know somebody's got a book on the philosophy of science on their desk. Yeah, I can still see Gus without my glasses. Uh, now, what I want to say about Darwinism was that you know, the most interesting thing about it was that immediately, again, because it's an excuse to get away from God, people built sociological models out of the scientific. So you have all of these ridiculous theories about how society could evolve into a higher order. The problem was that some of them were, you know, would do it by sort of gaining in maturity and becoming more sensible and optimistic humanism sort of took you down the road till it hit the First World War and it blew up. Uh, and then you had the much more brutal version of the fittest survive. And that will evolve that way and everything in between. And then there were the political views, it seemed to me, on how we could best do it without God. And short hand, as I say, I can't spend too long on this. I'm just talking to you about how this would influential for me. That's number one, we want to get away from the truth. Number two, when we follow the logical conclusions, politically we ended up with some utterly dreadful outcomes. Karl Marx, left-wing solution. What is the problem? The problem is God. The opiate of the people is religion. Do away with religion and we'll find the banner on earth. Now Karl Marx, of course, died a lonely and bitter old man and was buried in Highgrove Cemetery on a wet, drizzly day in London. I'm not sure if there's any other type of day in London. Eleven people went for his funeral and he would have been forgotten except that a man called Lenin came along, didn't he? And you know what happened then? Communism proved a great answer, did it? Utterly dreadful. Utterly dreadful. Sixty million people believed to have died to Stalin and other Russian leaders at various times. Incredible the Pol Pot killing fields. Incredible cruelty visited on people. Not a solution. I couldn't go there. But the right one. You know, the higher criticism in Germany, the first really serious attempt to wash God out of the equation from the 1830s on, needs to recognise that if God is dead, so is man. He died in the so and he probably would have been forgotten apart from his writings and fascism. The right wing way to do things without God. 60 million people died in the Second World War. Figured in the very large part, of course, by fascism. By that belief, that right-wing belief, you can do it without God, in fact, there's no God, we're not higher or accountable to a higher authority, we can do it better without him, and in fact, the only morality left, ideological, is the struggle for power. Kim Beasley, other side of politics to me, but um, a very fine Australian, a man I have an enormous regard for, a very clear thinker, very articulate man. On the anniversary of the second ending of the Second World War, 60th anniversary in the Parliament, there were some very eloquent speeches of varying qualities, but his was a pearl. And he made the observation, he said, you know, we cannot look at the Second World War again without being confronted by the conundrum that is human life. I'm paraphrasing. Um, but that's what he said. He said, think of it. We have this problem 
brought so starkly to us of the utter depravity that we are capable of on the other hand, contrasted with the great nobility which we can be capable of on the other. How do we explain it? Think. 12 million people murdered by their own government in the gas plant for 6 million years, 6 or 7 million Egyptians, homosexuals, whatever else they were, uh, that were deemed to be not desirable at the time. Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, uh, all of the, the, the proudly we sort of see in the Second World War, the utter brutality of what happened in Russia, utter brutality of it, the utter inhumanity of it, the despair that was produced, being on looking at the human condition, contrasted, of course, with this extraordinary nobility of spirit and the courage that we celebrate in so many ways every Anzac Day, whatever, people lay down their lives for others. The glory and the scum. How do we explain it? Because he was right to ask the question. And I found myself frankly confronted by it. And I found I couldn't be a postmodernist. You see, the modernists, up until the Second World War, I suppose you could say, thought, yes, we can do it without God, we've just got to find the right formula, haven't we? Whether it's communism, no, that didn't work. Narcissism didn't work. Optimistic humanism actually hasn't worked all that well. Pessimistic humanism is a bit sort of bleak, but perhaps we can go there, I don't know. Uh, but, um, well, that didn't work, from my point of view. But the arrogance has gone, after this, I suppose, after the 20th century, and we postmodernists, if we've got something going for us, we're not quite as arrogant. We accept that without God, those attempts to find our own perfect society actually haven't worked all that well. So what we're essentially doing, what I was doing, when I realised this was sitting on the fence, thinking to myself, right, I can float along here nicely on the fence, like everybody else is doing, the broad and easy road, without having to ask any questions, because they're just too damn hard. Finding the answers are just too uncomfortable. They're too unattractive. They demand too much. Uh, and so we'll satiate ourselves. For a long time it was all about materialism. I suspect that in my time in the 1970s, something else was being added to that, and this may or may not ring true to you, the accumulation of experiences, the experience of a lifetime, whether it's a ballooning trip or whether it's an extreme sport or whether it's a Kokoda trail, not knocking anything, all great things to do, but they are not something to build a sort of life purpose and meaning on, are they? Postmodernists, you see, we're not as arrogant as the But I couldn't sit on the fence, and I'm confronted with this, and we had a lecturer, I don't know whether he's still active. But he challenged us at the end of the course. He said, this is not part of the curriculum. But he realised where we're at. You've got to make some choices in your own lives. He said, he was still struggling with himself. He was incredibly honest. But he said, if you go down the road of where Western leading thought has gone, you seem to end up in a very open place. If you want to go back, you're confronted with what? Christianity. So I... Uh, uh, as I say, that was a very valuable preparation. I understood that we want to get away from it. I understood that... Uh, you know, we do have this great problem of good and evil. It can't go away. It hasn't gone away. I mean, the same day that Kim D. Beasley spoke, there was the Australian running a story on the front page about uh, a hero in Victoria, you know, the nobility coming out and sacrificing his life to save someone from a burning house. So, no, going back to Scott of Jail for dropping his de facto uh, girlfriend's baby in boiling water because he couldn't put up the screaming anymore. The problem hasn't gone away, it's still there. Um, so, here we have this lecture challenging us and I realised I couldn't sit where I'd been on the fence and I couldn't cope with where we try to go individually and collectively in our rejection of God all the time. So I went back to the Christianity that I found as a schoolboy. 
C.S. Lewis wrote in 1928 when he reluctantly embraced Christianity that he was the most dejected, downcast and miserable person on the whole face of the earth at that point. Well, that was, I have nothing else, modesty forbid, that I should claim anything else in common with C.S. Lewis except that. It was only true until 1978 where on this campus I realised that I had to embrace faith too. The alternative was too dreadful for me. And I remember my father and my friends and so forth saying, well, that will be the end of life as you know it. You'll never have any friends. Your life will be a miserable. You'll have all the wrong sorts of friends. There you go. Have a look around and see whether your friends are wrong. <laughs> uh, you'll never get on. You'll be a pariah. You're outside the mainstream. In one sense, probably true. In another sense, would I go back? No, not the million years. Would I give up the things that I believe to be true? No, because, because I found the great Christian truth not only to resonate in terms of my recognition of truth in my heart, but also more particularly that Jesus Christ is an excuse. He will come and live there is purpose, there is meaning, there is an answer to the conundrum that is life, and there's a deep seated sense of peace and joy that goes with it. So, that was the last part of the preparation. I said that only snapshots. I just want to say two other things before we really then go to questions and discussions, which I always enjoy. It's the only thing I'm, I, I miss in public life is a good verbal snapshot. <laughs> I suppose it's the stupidest place in all of Christendom to say that, with a bunch of very intellectually gifted young people full of questions and hard issues. But uh, I did find in my own years of public life, I want to say one thing about it to you, this is a professor, nothing particularly doing the book. It's tough. I think well, really tough. And the closer you are to the top, the tougher it is. And the more if you have any sensitivity at all, you feel the weight and the responsibility of, seek, of, 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 of what is involved in serving your fellow Australians. And I had some very sticky moments. The one that I will never forget is that I was acting Prime Minister on the night of September 11. 2001. It was a dreadful week. Australia's second airline had collapsed. Uh, I'd had responsibility for all of that from the harbours in America uh, and I'd not slept for two nights. I was working around the clock for 48 hours or however long it was, trying to work out how to resurrect that airline. That's another story, but I was exhausted and then except September the 11th hit. And we had no idea what it meant. Our security people, such arrangements as we had in place, uh, you know, for such an eventuality, nobody foreseen anything like that, all swung into action, uh, but we really didn't know what was coming, what it meant. There was a real fear that it was just the beginning of a whole rolling series of, uh, of, of incidents and what have you. And at that moment, did I feel the weight of my responsibilities on myself massively? But what I want to say to you is that just as we ought to do every day, submit ourselves to Christ, Ask for his guidance, recognise his awesome power, that he is in control, uh, that he is able to meet our needs. Uh, I found at that point a sense of calmness and specifically an ability to put my own self interest aside. At a moment like that, a politician is inclined to think that firstly, of his own skin, and secondly, of his political team's skin. And I recognised at that point that it might, in fact, have been very serious indeed, could have led to a, you know, undoing in all sorts of ways, didn't happen. And I was able to put self-interest aside in a way that I could never have done in my natural state. It must have made a very powerful moment of realisation that the awesome God that I believe in and many of you believe in is real. And the last thing I want to say to you is that on the nature of victory, that's looking ahead. Politics is a very tough and a very brutal game. It needs 
really capable people, Martin Luther actually commented that our best and brightest young people should be encouraged to think about politics even ahead of ministry. Now that'll offend some of you. He said, in the, end, in the end, ministry you could get. But public life is such an incredibly indefinable and difficult art uh, that uh, we need people to be greatest at Martin Luther nominated. I just make this point though, that every politician finds it, if they're honest, very hard, very tough, very challenging, very difficult. Uh, not perhaps the way that it's portrayed. And one of the things that they all worry about is what's going to, how the, what their demise will, how their demise will come about. It's such a brutal game. You never know whether it's going to be tomorrow or whether it's going to be a time of great choosing. Very rarely is. One of my predecessors said to me, you normally go as a result of one of four Ds. Defeat, disgrace, demotion. I can't remember the other one. Um, death. <laughs> death. <laughs> um, very rarely is it as a, as, a, as a result of a decision, which in my case it was. Uh, but uh, I was able, before God, to choose the moment of my departure. Uh, uh, but I want to, the point I want to make out is they all worry about how they're going to be written up. I caught the normal sort of mixed bag. So, for example, uh, the Sydney Morning Herald said, oh, the country and the government are better, the government and the country are better off without him. Uh, I'm paraphrasing. Uh, but they said, the Melbourne Age, which of course is part of the same paper group, wrote that I was the greatest thing since sliced bread. Now, I'm, I'm only being, I'm crushing over this. But to make this point, you're going to judge yourself, and I realise this is that point. By how I was seeing you, we don't really have schizophrenia. <laughs> we really are. If there's one thing you should not value, and this I really are thought through wise words from people who know you, it's the judgments of other people. Uh, so really accurate, but there's a great judgment you really do have to worry about, and that's where the victory will come. You won't even be thinking about it because it's your age, you put the boys and girls. You know, men and women, Australia, you won't be thinking about it. But it goes by incredibly quickly. It seems the other day that I was sitting up the back in this very lecture theatre listening to, I think, uh, it uh, was uh, John Woodhouse talking from here. Just the other day. You know, it'll be just another day, unless I drop dead of a heart attack walking out of here after my heart pressing or something, <laughs> when I'll be asked a very big question. A very big question. And it'll be by the God of the ages. And this is where the victory bit comes in. Fortunately for me, it isn't going to be what did your peers think of you. Did the Sydney Morning Herald get it right, John, in which case you go down there? Or did the age get it right, in which case John, I'll let you end up here? Is that what it's going to be like? No. That's not going to be the question. <clears throat> we are going to face that. Can I tell you, in terms of some of the things I've said today, the world will not make sense, by the way, unless there is a day of victory. There is good and there is evil. If you were to make any sense at all of life, any sense in particular of the value you should attach to those lives that have been abused, neglected, thrown from, cut short, cruelly ended, or mistreated by unhuman beings, this is, if there's to be any sense, there must be a day of reckoning, and there must be justice. And someone is going to have to pay the price for the wrongdoing. So the question will be are you going to pay the price for your wrongdoing? Or did you hear about my plan to rescue you from it in Jesus Christ? And I believe it can. Deep news I can but stay, say to you as I stand here, each of us will face that. And we will have to give account. And that is a wonderful thing, though something to be feared and respected and taken seriously. The victory is not yours or mine of our own doing. 
Now you will be facing, of course, uh, an age where there is a new, this is my final point, know what I said about the modernists? They arrogantly believe they could do it without God and if they found the right formula, this formula, that formula, optimistic humanism, communism, fascism, whatever it was, then it all come right. Postmodernists, the great thing they were going for, they're not so arrogant anymore that there's a new arrogance emerging. Isn't it? It's Richard Dawkins and his crew. I just want to say this to someone who's been in the public square. The more you strip out Christianity and the values and the beliefs and the worldview that stems from it, the more chaotic our lives and our society will become, I believe, that as surely as night follows day. Because the problem for the Richard Dawkinses of this world is leave aside the science, they have no answer to the human conundrum. The glory and the sky. The only answer, after 20 years in public life and more, that stacks up it all, that fits the problem, is the Christian life. We ask that question now. We're actually creating the good in relationship with our Creator and with one another. What we crave relationships, we're made for them. That's where our nobility comes from. Flawed by the fact that we decided we could do it better without God and go our own selfish way. Thanks very much. Happy to take your questions. I should retreat on what I said about enjoying a good spouse. This is not the place to do it. You're probably all about three times as bright as I am. But anyway, I'll have a go. Yes? Um, I'd suggest to you that the idea that life doesn't make sense unless there is a day of reckoning is a relic of the law of savage men. That basically, you're going to get it in the end, baby. And I would say that if one starts from the position that God is love, then life is totally meaningful, whether there is a day of recognition or not. And what's more, the nice thing about that is that one can work with people of all faiths and atheists as well, because the average atheist, unlike Richard Dawkins, couldn't give a shit whether God exists or not, because they're not interested in that. They're only interested in creating a world where love rules as distinct from a whole lot of fights between a whole lot of men about whether there's one God and whether it's their God and what his bloody rules are. And so I'd suggest to you that basically the concept that there must be a day of reckoning is a primitive throwback to an earlier view and a savage church. So... Um, <coughs> Over the last hundred years, we've become civilised. No, I'm not suggesting that. I stood on the steps of the National Portrait Gallery in London when I was about your age. I met a young German man. He said, "I'm studying theology in Germany." I said, "That's interesting. I'm a believer." We had a very interesting theological discussion in which he said, "You know, God is love. There will be no God without judgment. There doesn't have to be. God loves everyone." So I said, "Well, Adolf Hitler." Be accepted by God? Of course, he said. Of course, he said. He will be accepted because God is love. I said, what is that to say then about the value of the lives of the people whose deaths he was responsible for, the cruelty inflicted upon the millions? So my position is that if we say we love others, if we say we really care about those who have been subjected to the brutality which so many of us appear to be capable of, 
if there is to be, in the end, fairness, someone has to pay the price. I don't see how it can be any other way. And then, if I may, Madam, carefully read the story of what's known as the, 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 uh, uh, the, uh, the, the parable of the lost son. Uh, the, the story of two sons, actually, two. And if you listen to the story of the first one, you know that the self-discoverer runs away and comes back and is accepted. That's a wonderful, warm and reassuring story. But have a very close look at the second, the older son, who was always obedient to his father, wasn't he? Always obedient, but in the end, like the younger son, he actually only wanted what the father had. He didn't want the father. And he was so hard at heart, he wouldn't come back in. And that's the nature of our problem. The nature of our problem is our heart. We are actually hardened against the loving God. Now, I, I think the two have to be kept in perfect tension. God's mercy, God's justice. Because I don't see how you can have one without the other. Obviously not. The point is, how does one self-act? Whether one is guided by the church and the idea that the church has a lot of rules which one must follow, or does one stand there and say, what is my relationship to God and how can I act in a loving way? Or what is my relationship to others and how can I act in a loving way? And then it's a relationship between you and God. Whereas you are speaking from the perspective of a Christian, whereas when you started off speaking, you could have been speaking from my perspective or a Buddhist perspective or a, or a Hindu's perspective or anybody's perspective. The question is, is the relationship with the church as an edifice with its history and its rules or is it a personal relationship with the desire to be good? I uh, don't believe that the church has a role to play in intermediary, an intermediary role between any one of us and God. We all come to faith through the church because the true church is just a body of believers uh, in Christian language. Uh, but I believe that we are reunited with God with whom we were never meant to be out of communion through the love of Jesus Christ and the sacrifice he made for us. And I think the central issue, if I may say so, uh, is... How do you come to grips with this claim, this astonishing claim of, of Jesus Christ? When Pilate asked him, uh, why did you come? He said, I came to testify to the truth. Pilate spat out, truth, what is the truth? You can hear him saying, it's like a good place to <laughs> <laughs> uh, But of course, what Jesus had said, I am the way and the life and the truth. Are you truth as a person? No one comes to the Father but I Extraordinary claim the one that I urge you not to dismiss. Chief Anastasia is coming out today. Um, I was just wondering, in politics, are there any really tough decisions you've had to make and you know, had to really reconcile with God? And if so, how did you go about doing that? Um, they're always tough decisions, yes. Very tough decisions. Um, and sometimes they are, if you like, morally neutral. They just go to what you think is going to produce the best result. Yes. I mean, the issue over which I'm not going to tell you what it was here over which I felt I had to resign, was an economic one that affected rural Australia. It was probably not in the end a moral decision. Um, and I nearly did resign, 
colleagues, etc. I thought that's one of the better um, I should say to you that in the system that we've evolved in our parliaments, of course, on most of the great moral issues of the day, constant votes are given. So you sometimes hear people say, oh, the parties constrain people from voters according to their constant. But in reality, most of the big life debates, if you like, things like planning and what have you, they have actually seen constant votes in the parliament and they've been free to vote as they see it, as they have seen it. Yes. Uh, Mr. Anson, I'd just like to uh, congratulate you on the final stance you've taken on many issues over the years. And uh, just to inquire what you think are the uh, big issues for Christians in politics uh, over the next five years or so. Well, well thank you for your kind remarks. Um, the big issues, I'm not sure if they change. I think the big issue is, in fact, very postmodernist soft tense. Before, in the West, we've either sat on the fence so long that we're no good to make it now to take a stand on anything, or we've fallen into this modernist trap of thinking we can do it best about God again. So I would say that, but this is a real challenge. And can I tell you, I mean, I think it's wonderful that Dawkins is out there. You know what I mean by that, that shorthand for all this, you know, the God to lose in all these books and so forth. I have read them all. When you read Dawkins, go and read Tim Keller. Okay, so balance them up. But we need to begin this debate. This is going to go to the heart and soul of what we believe as individuals and how we're going to behave, what sort of society we want for ourselves. And the debate is that we've had because we too long we've sat on the fence and not been involved in it. Now, of course, to some extent, uh, you know, uh, over recent decades, in many places, particularly in the West, uh, Christianity has been marginalised. But I just say to you, I believe that's a profoundly dangerous thing. Those of you who are in an American history will know how the American forefathers understood the democracy, the republic they were setting up, would only function properly while men and women had a clear conscience, a clear understanding of right and wrong. And if we lose that in an age of moral relativism, we lose completely, I believe we will be in very deep trouble. I think it's a great shame, by the way, uh, you might think this is funny coming from a Christian, but you know, the Australian advertising industry wouldn't take on the humanist campaign they're running in England. You know, the one that God is probably not there, so go and have a good time. You know that when you heard about that? Um, and the Australian advertising industry wouldn't take it on. I think it's a great shame. I make two points. The first is, well, the Brits have been living as though God didn't exist for the last few decades anyway. Let's be frank about it. Even more so than Australia. That's a, that's a fair statement, I think it's fair to say. Are they happy? Have a look at all those social media pages. So, they've been living as though God's not there, they haven't been home? Come on. But secondly, it ought to make everyone think. It might surprise you, but I, I, I'm a, still Australia's longest serving aviation minister. If I've gone on national television before Easter, which is when most Australians fly, that's the peak flying period, okay? And I have said, in Australia, all of our planes are probably safe. <laughs> what would you have said? You get the point? That slogan should have everybody saying, what do you mean probably? What actually is there? And this is going to affect my attitude and decisions I make now will affect me for all the time. I'd better have another look and better think. Get off the place of modernist fence. 
You know, I come from the bush. Bob, well, thanks for those advice. I can't say wrong. Do you use to decide? I mean, for example, to just, 
Um, and whilst we may disagree that sex before marriage is inappropriate, we're hardly, I think few of us would suggest we need to imprison people for having you know, committed that sin, etc. But on the hand of then um, homosexual marriage, etc., we then uh, say, no, you can't do that. Where for you, how does uh, your faith and your political beliefs, um, you know, Moses, for example, making it permissible to divorce, where do you draw the line, how do you draw the line? And second of all, um, with Australian politics, do you think, and Christianity, is there, in your experience, there mightn't be, but a particular style or something that's interesting about Christians in politics in Australia? That's what I'd make is that the great defining point for a Christian at all times in public life should be that each human being is an infinite value. And I tell you that is very rare. That has been lost. Nothing else presents a threat to the future of our society. As the old saying, I don't know who coined it, devaluing one life is devaluing your lives. Our freedom to filter, as I said to you earlier, Chinese understand this, on the idea that even the lowest peasant man subjected to the same laws as a king. So that's a defining point, that each individual matters. And from then on, you often have to make very pragmatic individual decisions. I find it's always important to remember that God himself gives us free choice. He does not impose his will on us. We are free. There may be consequences for going in the wrong direction, but we're not free. He leaves us free to make our own judgments and our own decisions. And so far as possible, I believe legislators should do that, keeping in mind their, their great objective respect for those who are weak and who are vulnerable who are going to be impacted by poor and unwise decisions. So when you're considering family decisions, for example, I think the only responsible thing to do, and unfortunately this is very rare in Australia, lip services paper, but it's very rare now amongst our leading thinkers, the people who lead the debates of the day, when you're thinking about um, a family type issue, it should be the children involved. Okay. Then, and the science is pretty clear on what's ideal for them and what's not. None of us reach that here. But we're consciously walking the other direction. It's a real issue. Uh, what defines the Australian public debate is an interesting one. We're somewhere between England and America, where, where religion plays a huge role in public life. Huge. Uh, and England, where it's, you know, as Tony Blair said, oh, well, if you talk about Christianity now, you're seen as a, you know, as a lunatic fringe individual. Which is more civilised? Which culture? The British or the American? Madam, you have a lot to say, if I may say so. But can I say this? The most civilised societies on earth have been built by the believing Christians. The medieval era, the era was more civilised Post-Reformation. Post-Reformation. Democracies arose out of the Reformation. That's a matter of history. The Chinese can see it. No. We all have to see it. The very concept of the little person matters and it ought to be protected. He's a Christian concept. Find it for me in another culture. <coughs> There's a challenge. Find it for me in another culture. Oh, hi, John. It was interesting to hear the European history of And um, I suppose one of the hardest things to deal with when you're arguing for the goodness of Western civilization is um, the charge of imperialism and the role of Christianity might have had in some of that. And um, you raised some good examples about what happens when civilization um, departs again. Christian basis. Um, but another one that I've encountered in my studies is um, in India, when the British eventualised mm-hmm. the little part of the British flag of Belgium. Look, no society's perfect. I wouldn't claim that for a moment. But imagine what India would have been like if William Wilberforce and the Evangelicals hadn't assisted the British Parliament 
to restrain the unbelievably bad way in which the British East India Company behaved. England, uh, uh, for all of its faults and all of its difficulties, and you know, you talk about the value of you know, the need to respect little people, I mean, just look at the untouchables. I think where those ideas are based on, how evil they are. And consider how many uh, 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 women and girls are forced into prostitution in India. Probably more the population of Australia. But for all those problems, it's a democracy, groping its way towards greater freedoms and greater prosperity. Now, please don't be wrong. No society has ever been perfect, but I just make this point that the greatest freedoms are the The plain is when we've understood the value of each individual, their right to have a say, their right to self-determination, peaceful means of removing those who are corrupted by power because power does corrupt. And that's all deeply rooted in a Christian worldview. I profoundly believe that I can't find it anywhere else. Respect me, my hand. Well, my challenge remains. Find me another concept that is built as free and open a society as a Reformation Christianity, Christian ones did. Now, we didn't get it all right. It took them for years to work out that it wasn't very Christian to keep slaves, particularly to kidnap them and trade them. Because the Bible never condones. But they did it. Okay. Thanks very much for having me, and all the very best to you all.